This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. The doing the work day in and day out did carry a burden for me. And I think that's worth acknowledging. I don't think that's acknowledged enough by people who, who do animal work. Welcome to Hello PhD, podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we hear from a listener who is feeling hesitant about animal work, despite it being ubiquitous in her field of interest. We dissect her conundrum this week on the show. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 194. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Just let it be known, Josh. You wrote that pun. I did not write that pun. I just read the words in front of me. I was feeling punny. <laughs> it was pretty good. Dan, we had a great time talking with some grad students last week at ComSciCon New York. Yeah, it was excellent. I think it was based in, at Cornell, but it uh, incorporated several schools in New York State. And we talked to a group of students who were interested in science communication in general. But specifically, we tried to take them through some of our thinking about how to craft a podcast, um, what it takes to actually come up with content, how to know that a podcast is the right medium for your message, and uh, some of the tricks of the trade, Josh. So hopefully they enjoyed it, and we had a great time talking to them. Yeah, thanks to Malia for inviting us. Dan, would it be too meta for us to do an episode someday on that very topic, on creating a science podcast? You know, yes, it would be extremely meta. I don't know if there's a huge audience for that, but we could certainly ask our listeners whether they'd like to hear about, <laughs> to basically to hear the talk we put together about podcasting. So yeah, if you're interested in science communication and you want to hear our thoughts on that subject, then uh, write to us, podcast.hellophd.com and let us know. Dan, we have an interesting beer. I think we alluded to this on our last um, new episode, at least. I was getting ready to come down to North Carolina. We were out of beer, and we got together and traded some beer in the parking lot of a public establishment. And I was so excited, Josh, for you to get this beer because my neighbor brought it to me. He was, um, I think he was traveling. He picked it up on the road. He brought it down to me, thought I would like it, and I just knew you would like it, Josh. This is the Cheerwine Ale from Noda Brewing Company in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, it is a wheat ale made with natural and artificial cherry flavors. You knew I would like this one, huh, Dan? Well, you're <laughs> from the South, roughly, and Cheerwine, I, for the listeners that are not from the Carolinas or the Southeastern United States, Cheerwine is a soda or pop, depending on where you live. It's a cherry-flavored carbonated beverage it is not cheer wine is not wine it is not alcoholic but somebody has taken that cherry flavored item and crossed it with a wheat ale uh, and i just love that on the can they say natural and artificial cherry flavors because you know that cheer wine <laughs> does not contain entirely natural flavors this, this is a wheat ale dan did you say that i sure did <laughs> is, is the cheer wine going right to your head josh <laughs> Uh, all right, yeah, well, we can get into this. Uh, I, will, I will say briefly, I have some fond memories being a child in my hometown. I grew up in a very small rural town in the southeastern United States. And I remember there was a, a soda vending machine 
uh, outside of this skating rink in my town. This is definitely a bygone era, I believe, in the early 80s. And it was an RC machine, Royal Crown Cola, yeah. if anyone remembers that. But uh, Cheerwine was one of the sodas, and it was 25 cents. All the sodas were just a quarter. And I remember Cheerwine was one of my favorites at that time to get from that machine. Uh, so I do have fond memories of Cheerwine. And I will say Cheerwine has made a little bit of a comeback, at least as far as modern Southern cuisine. So if you go to a Southern-themed restaurant, sort of a Southern fusion restaurant, you will likely find something with Cheerwine, like a Cheerwine braised spare ribs or Cheerwine ice cream or something like a Cheerwine cocktail. Yeah, it's it's a flavored version of when you see those things with Coca-Cola. So you pour a Coca-Cola on a ham and call it, you know, Coke glazed ham. Um, I think the flavor for people that have not sampled Cheerwine, if you have had an icy or a slushy that is cherry flavored, this is the exact flavor of Cheerwine. Or at least that's the flavor that this beer is. I guess I can't say that it's this flavor of Cheerwine because I haven't had one in quite a while. Or if you've had cough medicine that has a cherry flavor. Oh, come not on. so different. <laughs> Uh, actually, to be fair, uh, that is not what Cheerwine tastes like, but that is kind of what this beer tastes like <laughs> to me, Dan. <laughs> um, I'm just going to cut to it, Dan. When I first taste this beer, I definitely get Cheerwine. You get those cherry, that cherry sensation that immediately took me to Cheerwine. So I believe that there is actual Cheerwine or Cheerwine syrup or something in Cheerwine-derived chemicals. But that is immediately followed by this chemically bitter flavor, which actually is what surprised me when you said this is a wheat ale, because a wheat ale tends to be a little bit lighter, a little bit breadier, maybe. I don't get that at all, Dan. I would have thought maybe this is a cheer wine mixed with a stout, but not necessarily a good one. I don't know, Dan. Not my not my it's, thing. It's not hoppy? Is it, did it skunk? Did you leave it in the hot car or something? I don't know. Does yours taste differently? No, it's got a little bitter bite on the on the tail end. I don't know. We've talked too long about this beer, Josh. Um, sure pick it up. Cheerwine Ale from Noda Brewing Company. Enjoy. <laughs> or don't. <laughs> All right, Dan. Uh, before we get on with the show, uh, there was one thing that I wanted to, to mention that I found interesting this week. Uh, I'm a co-author on a paper, still publishing, Dan, believe it or not. And you know, when you when you submit a paper... I'm like the fourth or fifth author, so so don't get too too excited or too proud of me, Dan. But when the paper is submitted, all the authors receive uh, this email to verify their contribution and to verify their their name and title. And uh, I, th- I found this interesting, uh, and their conflicts of interest. But I found this interesting. The final question on this uh, survey to authors from this journal had to do with AI. And so, let me read this to you. I copied this from, the, from that survey from the journal. And it asked, did the authors use any artificial intelligence or AI tools in the development of this work? Answer yes or no. If yes, please provide a brief explanation of which tools were used and how they were used. Please note that no editorial decisions will be made based on the basis of the answer to this question. This is simply a mechanism for disclosure. Please see our policy, use of AI tools, etc. for more detail. I thought that was interesting, and I had never seen this before, Dan, but I wonder how common this is becoming. Yeah, that seems fast. When you consider the fact that ChatGPT3, or whatever the one that kind of broke the internet, is only a few months old, uh, but already the journals are aware 
that it may be impacting authorship. I think that's really fascinating and, and surprisingly fast for what I consider to be fairly sluggish institutions. I, yeah, I will say I think I like this approach. The fact that clearly AI tools are are readily available and they're out there and much has been said about the fact they're being used in academic settings, likely research settings. Um, so I like this uh, saying, okay, we're not saying don't use AI tools. We're just saying if you did, let us know how they were used in this research or in the preparation of this manuscript. You know, we're not going to reject your manuscript over it, but we just uh, want to know as another form of disclosure. I thought that was pretty interesting. I think you should call their bluff. Do you believe that? No, I think you should call their bluff. I think you should say, I used an AI tool to fabricate (laughs) all of this data. Now, tell me again, you're not going to make an editorial decision based on that statement. I don't know. There's no way I would believe this. It it says no editorial decisions will be made based on the answer. But that may be true for this precise moment. That will not be true forever in the future. Depending on your answer too, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I... I mean, I, I don't know how you would be using an AI tool. I guess you could use it to craft the text. Hopefully, you're not using it to fabricate data. Um, there will be a time when you can use it to, you know, I, I've already seen tools where you can type in a phrase and it will create a PowerPoint slide for you based on your phrase with a graph. Uh, you could presumably use that same tool to just create graph based on data you have. So it's happening. I don't know that the disclosure is going to make a lot of difference. Yeah, I was curious if reviewers would see the answers to these questions and take that into account in their review, or if this would just come up at the editorial stage after the reviews are in. So did you use an AI tool, Josh, in your paper? I did not. I sure didn't. Probably should have. (laughs) It would have been better. Maybe you would have gotten your paper accepted. (laughs) It was rejected from the first journal, so maybe we should have. (laughs) Live and learn. All right, Dan, uh, we have some people to thank. We sure do. Josh, hopefully you have some career goals in mind, uh, but maybe you want to make sure that you and your PI are on the same page. If you do, create an individual development plan. An IDP ties an employee's responsibilities to learning objectives and professional growth. You can learn how to write an IDP with your PI if you go to promega.com slash hello IDP. And thanks again to Promega for their support. Hey, Dan, before we jump into our our listener mailbag, our topic of the week, I did want to offer a brief content warning that we are going to discuss animal work, particularly research on mice and other mammals. And so if you're squeamish about that sort of thing, uh, then you might want to skip over the discussion on this week's show. I'm squeamish about that, Josh. I'll see you next time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll stick around. All right, Dan, we got an email from a listener this week, and we decided this would be worthy of its own episode. And I know a lot of our listeners are in the biomedical realm, the biomedical fields, and likely many of them who are, are participating in or are or have been around um, animal work, whether that's mouse work or rat work or or other mammals, other animals. Uh, so this is a question that deals with that. Dan, you and I both had experience with animal work that I imagine we might draw from in our response to this email. But um, but why don't you read it and then we will we will get into this interesting conundrum. All right, Josh. This email comes from Brooke, and I will leave out any last names or other identifying information. But Brooke writes. 
Hope you're all doing well. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and although I have thought about emailing multiple times, I'm finally doing so to ask for some advice with my decision paralysis with picking my thesis lab, and specifically how to decide if mouse work is a deal breaker or not. For some background, I'm ending the first year of my PhD in a biomedical sciences program, and that means it's around the time for me to pick my thesis lab for the next five to six years. I'm having a bit of a dilemma with trying to pick a lab, though, as I came into the program with little to no specific direction, other than a desire to pick a good lab environment, a good mentor, and a general interest in studying neuroimmunology or neurobiology. So, so far, Josh, I'm happy about hearing focused on a good lab environment and a good mentor. That's probably better than most people coming into grad school. Brooke must have listened to our show. Let's hope so. She goes on, however, I have no background in neurobiology, so I honestly just picked it because studying the brain is how, and how it dysfunctions piqued my interest. As I've rotated through many labs now, I've come to realize that mice are really the only main model system that people at this school use in this neurofield. There are some interesting clinical-based human immunology labs, or my favorite, stem cell-derived models of neuronal glial cells, but they are few and far between and often less established. I exhausted all the labs that study neurobiology, and I found one lab that seems perfect, uses stem cells models, studies neuro questions I find interesting, great mentorship, great environment, but they unfortunately have been giving me the runaround on whether they have room and funding to take me. On the other hand, I found one lab that has funding and is also asking interesting neuro questions. It's more established and has a great lab environment and a mentor that I really trust to take me where I want to go. However, they do almost exclusively in vivo work with mice, and for some reason, I'm finding it difficult to want to commit to that. Besides probably committing to a longer PhD since mouse work takes a while, I also just don't feel comfortable working with mice yet and how dirty and archaic it seems. Everyone has been telling me you get used to it, and I've gotten a lot better at handling them over time, and people have told me I've already improved so much with working with them, but I still just prefer working on tissue culture hoods or in vitro settings, and I don't know if this preference comes just from being, being more predictable and what I've been used to doing all of my scientific career. I also feel like I'm pretty sure that when I graduate, I'd love to not ever touch a mouse again and go back to in vitro work, ideally in industry. And I'm not sure if working in an in vivo lab, even though the science and mentorship is what I want, would preclude me from being a prime candidate from that kind of work. She finishes up, Honestly, my most important question, does any of this even matter? I've been told that if you just pick a good thesis lab that teaches you good science and how to think, that's all you need. Does all my thinking about setting myself up with a lab that does the type of science that I think I want to do in the future even matter? Or do the techniques that I use even matter that much for finding a job in industry? TLDR, how can I tell if mouse work is a deal breaker for choosing a thesis lab or not? If everything else, science, mentorship, environment works, would you even say it's not worth it to join the lab? I personally don't have any ethical dilemma with working with mice, although I don't feel like I'm a saint while doing it. But it's just a preference for in vitro work because of its predictability, speed, and comfort, and probably sterility. Is that preference even a valid reason to reject a lab? I also worry if it'll be something that precludes me from being a candidate for other non-mouse work research, like cell therapies later. And most generally, what really matters when picking a thesis lab? Is there ever really a right choice? All the best, Brooke. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for that question. And I think one reason that I was excited to, to get this question is a lot of this resonated with me, Dan, when I thought back on my own experiences as someone who begrudgingly ended up doing quite a bit of mouse work in my in my thesis. And it really made me ponder if I was in Brooke's shoes and I had the choice to join my lab, knowing that I would have been doing that much mouse work, would I have still chosen that lab? Uh, so, so that's what it made made me think a little bit about. 
Those weren't those weren't your fondest memories of graduate school, Josh. <laughs> Uh, the little the little bonnets on your feet and the bonnet on your head and the whole suit. Well, I can say, uh, Brooke, if it makes you feel any better or give you some perspective about what I went through, um, I did end up doing quite a bit of, of animal work, of mouse work specifically. I was in a bacteriology and infectious disease lab, and we also were studying a biosafety level three pathogen. So, so we were often doing mouse work in a biosafety level three lab. So usually alone in this in this contained space, wearing a full body Tyvek suit. So I had the uh, animal work part plus the isolation part. <laughs> plus everything took longer because What's of all the like? sterility. Yeah, yeah, Dan. Like I mentioned, you know, when I remember when I joined my thesis lab, I didn't rotate in any labs that that did mouse work. Uh, there were labs that did mouse work, but I didn't think it was something that I would be interested in. So there were plenty of options that didn't do that. So I avoided them. And and even the lab that I did join, I really enjoyed cell culture uh, work. And I knew that this lab did back host, bacterial host pathogen interaction, but with cells, uh, not with animals. So I thought, well, that sounds great. <laughs> like, that's perfect. Until the research went in this certain direction, I started getting these results and it came to a point where the questions that I wanted to answer involved mice to answer them. And, you know, it really wasn't necessarily my PI forcing me to do that, but me just kind of realizing this is the next step. At that time, I want, you know, I wanted to know the answer. I was honestly curious and animals were kind of the way to go. Now I will say that, uh, after two to three years of doing animal research, I was totally done. I almost always disliked it when I was doing it, and, and I really identified with some of the things that, that Brooke said. I, I, I certainly was not ethically against it, and even to this day, I don't have uh, ethical dilemmas with the work we did or animal work in general, um, if it's done appropriately. But it just was yeah it was very slow it was very isolating it just did not bring me joy to do and i don't know maybe it doesn't bring joy to anyone to do but for me one thing that helped a little bit was there were there was another grad student in the lab who liked animal work more than i did and <laughs> we were doing similar projects and so we often would do animal work together at the same time and that made it a little bit better because I could sort of pair the thing I didn't like, which was doing these animal procedures with something I did like, which was talking to my friend. <laughs> and so uh, I guess doing something with someone else can help. So one thing to maybe think about is what's the environment in the lab? Are experiments really done in isolation by yourself? Do people work in teams to do this work? Do you like the people? Does that make it feel different to you? Um, I can say over time, Dan, you know, we were doing a lot of of collecting different types of cells from mice and then doing this intricate staining to do these flow cytometry techniques. I really liked that part, um, but that was also a new thing that our lab was not doing a whole lot of. But my friend, the other grad student, was much more adept at the animal work part. I was much more adept at the cell staining and the flow cytometry part. So I guess we were sort of doing some team science back in the day where 
you know, she would take the lead a little more on some of the aspects of the animal research that I was less good at and less interested in. And then I would take the lead on some of these cell stainings that she was less interested in and less adept at, um, and kind of form this partnership to help each other out. Um, if it wasn't for that, I think one, my results wouldn't have been uh, nearly as good, but also I think it would have been harder for me to get through. So, um, you know, I share that just saying, Brooke, I know where you're coming from. Um, and one thought I had was, you know, are there other folks in the lab who can share some of this burden with you or are you going to be on your own? I think that's really helpful. I agree with you that um, having somebody else there makes it better. I I came in through a similar path, Josh. It wasn't until I think my third or fourth year. Uh, my lab was not a, a mouse lab. We developed a knockout mouse. Somebody in the lab did. And then when he left... Uh, and my thesis was looming and I, I didn't have the papers that I needed to graduate. I sort of fell into this project. So I kind of adopted the mouse colony and tried to get some experiments prepared. Um, but basically I took over management and maintenance of the colony. So it wasn't something I picked and I certainly would not have picked it. It was really a, a tough struggle for me. I, I don't know that it was ethically, like I think ethically I could say, oh, I understand why this is happening and, and that it's for the greater good. But to be the person that does the actual uh, euthanization or the experiments, like it's not easy and it's not fun. And so I, I think it is a challenge. I think having somebody there, like you said, would make it slightly better. And that's not the experience I had. What I have hope for for Brooke is that if this is a big neuro lab, everybody is working with these mice. And so I think it sounds like everybody will be kind of in the same boat. will be able to help Brooke with the process. Yeah. I want to address a couple aspects of, of Brooke's email that she mentioned. Um, one of them is you know, she did mention she had some specific interest in, in maybe some cell based, um, some stem cell based neuro labs of which there are very few at her institution. Um, you know, it is worth noting that, very few people end up doing work long-term that directly relates to the work they did as a graduate student. Sometimes people do, but most of the time people don't. Uh, if your interest is to stay in the academic research pathway, it's often the work that you do as a postdoc that is more in line with the work that you're going to do longer term in your career. And so I think that is the transition step where it's most critical to really think about the specific type of research you want to do long term. If you want to stay in academia, although Brooke mentions wanting to go to industry, you know, I can say I did a postdoc and I was very, very intentional about only looking at postdoc labs where I absolutely would not do animal work. And I can also say that experience doing animal work in grad school and then not doing it in my postdoc, that first six months of my postdoc felt so fun and freeing because the fact that I could just go into lab, set up my experiment on the regular bench in the regular lab where everybody else was hanging out and I didn't have to spend all this time doing the animal stuff was such a burden off of me that actually I didn't realize how big of a burden I was carrying when I was doing animal work day in and day out during graduate school. So, you know, Brooke, I think it's important to think a little bit about, yeah, you want to think about your long-term career, sure, and how you might be or might not be set up for that. But three, four, five, six years is a long time. So I think you might also think about, how am I really going to feel 
day in and day out and day in and day out for years, the next few years of your life, um, if that's really what you have facing you, and that's what's going to be standing between you and getting this degree that you hope to get, uh, is all this animal work. So I know personally that can wear on you if, if it is something that does wear on you. Um, that can be a burden over time. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I don't, I don't know if you intended this, Josh, but we can talk a little bit about the types of activities that people do with, with lab animals. And I think there are, there's a spectrum of the interaction that you have with the animal. So you might just be the consumer of the parts. You know, if, if you're just taking brains and slicing them in a microtome and staining them, that is one aspect of consuming, uh, animal research, animal parts. But on the other hand, you may be the person that is doing the, the animal husbandry, cleaning the cages, changing the mice from one cage to another, tagging in some way the baby mice so that you know which, which one is of which genetic profile. There's a, a lot of day-to-day interaction. Or you could be somewhere in the middle where maybe you're not doing the animal husbandry and cage cleaning, but you are performing experiments. You're, you're doing something to these mice that is either painful or uncomfortable, or maybe it's not, but um, in many cases, the research has an approved process for uh, damaging the brain or for administering a drug that causes some change in the brain. And so I think those are all different experiences of animal research, and I think they can have different effects on your psyche. And you need to think a little bit about where you will be in that process to know whether you can take it or not. And, um, I would say that if you don't like the smell of mice or the dirtiness of mice, then almost none of those, except for the just slicing brains, is going to be very much fun for you. And so I would have a hard time recommending you get involved in a mouse research lab if the presence of mice kind of grosses you out. I think that'd be a really tough day-to-day experience. Yeah, especially because then you not only have to deal with the presence of mice, but you know, physically picking up those mice and maybe injecting those mice with something. And that's such a great point, Dan. Um, in some cases, depending on the experiments you're doing, doing something to the mice over time, determining if a negative thing is happening to them, um, and then doing a surgery or euthanizing them and dissecting them. All different Yeah, and that affects people differently. And it sounds like you you have been having the opportunity to actually do those things. So you've collected some data on yourself and how you feel um, when you do that. You know, I will say, you, you mentioned, and I've heard people say this too, that you get used to it. And I do think, well, I will speak from my personal experience, you get better at it. <laughs> I will say that. You get sure. more efficient with it. Um, I don't know that I got used to it from the point of view where it just became routine and it didn't wear on me. And and again, I say that sort of from the point of view of I don't know that I was always dreading it in the forefront of my mind, but realizing once it was no longer part of my life, how much more fun science felt to me again in a way that I realized it had not for those years where I was doing that. And I say, and this is very nuanced because again, I really enjoyed the results that I was getting. I was really interested in the questions that 
the mouse models were helping me address. So that was engaging and that was an important part of my PhD experience. But the doing the work day in and day out did carry a burden for me. And I think that's worth acknowledging. I don't think that's acknowledged enough, really, by people who, who do animal work. Yeah, there's a, a psychic cost. And, and I will say, you know, Josh, to your point, I was doing in vitro research first. I was studying um, cells in a dish. We would collect these cultures of astrocytes from another lab. So the other lab was doing mouse work. They were actually doing cultures of neurons. When the neurons outgrew their culture media and kind of died, there were astrocytes left over. And my research was on astrocytes, and so I was able to study them in a dish. I will tell you, astrocytes in a dish are not behaving the same way as astrocytes in a brain. And uh, I hate that. I wish that they were the same thing, but they aren't. And so the kinds of questions that I could answer, the kinds of observations that I could make were always tinged with this, well, but in real life, it might be different. And so I think, Josh, to your point, the type of question you're trying to answer, is it so compelling to you that it takes you into the realm of animal work? Um, There's just a different type of question that you can answer by using a live animal. All that being said, the psychic cost is, is absolutely real. And to do it day in and day out is really tough. Now, I wanted to make a, a point about Brooks' kind of aversion to the, the grossness and the messiness. Um, when I was a new father, and the first diaper that I had to change, and Josh, you'll remember, newborn baby diapers are the most disgusting. Like, it, it starts out worse than when they get old. I don't know. It's just like a really gross thing. Sorry that we're talking about this on a podcast. But I remember the first time I tried to change the baby diaper, I was like gagging. I was about to throw up by about the 450th baby diaper. You know, I'm like <laughs> wiping poop off with my hand because I couldn't find a wipe. You know what I'm saying? My you're, level. You're licking your fingers clean. I, <laughs> I didn't go that far. <laughs> but I, was, I just wanted to point out my experience of how disgusting something is, was, is changed by the process of encountering it every single day. My, that baby now has grown to uh, be a much older kid and when I ask him to help with the dishes, he is so grossed out by touching the food that was on plates because it just seems disgusting to him that he's going to like maybe scrape against a piece of food that got wet. So (laughs) again, if he does the dishes every night, he's going to get over that. And so I don't want you to turn down this opportunity. If you really think it answers a question that you want to be able to answer because it's gross, because I think your brain will be able to adapt to the grossness. The type of psychic cost, Josh, I think you're talking about is different from just it being gross. It's kind of about the activity of of treating animals in a way that is not them living out their best lives. And and I think that's a great, a great example, Dan. And I'm glad you mentioned it because this really is nuanced, I think. If I do reflect back on the experience I had, everything I just said about the, the toll that I think it took on me for those few years that I was doing animal work, I would still choose that lab again because the mentorship was right for me, the people were right for me, the questions were interesting for me at the time, the lab environment was a good fit for me personally. And when I think of the labs that I rotated in and other labs that might have been available to me, that's still the lab that I would choose if I could go back and do it again. Dan, I know you might not say the same thing, uh, but probably not for the animal work reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say it about the whole experience. Yeah. We, we've talked a lot about our own experiences, Dan, um, 
because I think, you know, this email really made, made us reflect on some of those. But I did want to kind of go through some different scenarios, Brooke, that you might consider and you might weigh um, against uh, joining this lab that otherwise sounds good. Um, you know, you mentioned there was this one other lab that you presumably rotated in that was doing this kind of, of cell work that was avoided the animal work that you didn't want to do. It seemed like the mentorship was potentially good and every other things about the lab were good, except there are potential issues with them having room or funding for you at this time. You know, if you're really set on that one lab, you could maintain that connection, give it a good go, <laughs> go meet with that advisor one more time and restate that that is your number one choice. The room or the funding issue can be a real one. Not all labs take grad students every year, which is actually, that can be a good thing because, you know, many labs want to make sure they actually have the the people resources and the money resources to train the people and support their projects that are in the lab, that they take into the lab. But assuming that's true, you could express your willingness to submit fellowship applications, to try to bring in some additional funding to support you um, during your time in the lab. Uh, you could also explore whether the lab or program that you're in is affiliated with a T32 training grant. If you're in the United States, many uh, large research institutions have these T32 training grants that support grad students, often for a year or two. So you could find out if your program is affiliated with one of those and who the director of that T32 program is, and whether or not you could be appointed to that for a year or two. Um, but I would probably be hesitant to advise you to brute force your way into a lab that seems hesitant to take you, but you know, it might be worth one more shot, one more good conversation. The other thing you could do is if the second lab, the one that does animal work, but otherwise seems great. If that's really the one thing that's holding you back from that lab, you could try having a really open and honest conversation with the PI of that lab and say everything that you said to us that, Everything about this lab seems great. I'm hesitant about the animal work. Um, I think that option could be okay if you would you were okay with nuking that lab as a possible choice. Um, if, if if it's truly a deal breaker to work in that lab and do animal work, but otherwise you like the lab, you could try just talking to the PI, being open. And maybe the PI will say, you know what, I've had in my back pocket an idea for this different type of project that I've been waiting for somebody to do. We haven't really done this, but maybe this could be part of your project. And then perfect. It's like a miracle for you. And suddenly you can join the lab of your dreams and not do animal work. But I give this advice with the caveat that it's possible that you might completely blow up your chance of being in that lab. Because I've also seen that happen where a student will go to a faculty member and say, I love your lab, except I don't want to do animal work. And like, that's literally all they do in that lab. And so the advisor's like, yeah, I'm not going to take you in my lab because this is too yeah. risky because that's what we do here. But if you want to do the Hail Mary pass, right, <laughs> you could you could go that option. Um, but then the last thing that I would have you think about is you mentioned that this neuroscience thing is kind of new to you. It's something that you just started thinking about. You have, so you mentioned some experience in, in microbiology and some other fields, you know, another option is you could totally bail on the neuroscience for now. Um, assuming your program gives you access to other labs, you could try to do some additional rotations, try to think about some other questions. I mean, there's a lot of research questions that are out there related to biomedical science and see if there's something else that's interesting 
to you that's using techniques that don't make you miserable. Uh, I'm not sure about your schedule. You said you, I'm imagining this time of year you're towards the end of your first year. That could possibly delay you joining a thesis lab. But honestly, picking a good lab for you is one of the most important decisions you'll make in your first year. So I think it can be worth spending a few extra months if you have that option available to you. Um, and you know, one last thing I might mention is it seems you've been focusing in these neuroscience type labs that maybe are all part of a neuroscience type program. But if you're at a larger school that has a pretty wide biomedical umbrella, you know, sometimes there can be people who ask neuroscience type questions who are outside of a neuroscience department. Uh, like I know there could be people who maybe study other model systems like, you know, sea elegans or fruit flies or, or something else that are neuroscience related, but are not in the neuroscience department. So you might take a broad look at your institution's website, look at labs that your program's affiliated with, and you may just find something that's interesting outside of where you've been looking now that may scratch that research itch. I agree with that. And sometimes professors have dual appointments or multiple appointments in different departments. And sometimes you'll find that there are collaborations between somebody in the neuroscience department and somebody in another department. So, for example, the lab I studied in was in the cell biology department. Uh, we were a cytoskeleton lab. It was all about cell migration and cell motility. But I had this project that had to do with astrocytes because that was a system that was interesting for cell migration. So I think finding some of those collaborations uh, making some of those links may get you adjacent to the neuroscience you like and maybe wouldn't put you in a mouse lab specifically. And I also wanted to throw in, Josh, I reached out to a friend of the show, uh, Jaina Kuchinobud, who is professor at University of Virginia. And she's our, our resident neuroscientist. She's been on the show several times. She did her her graduate research, I think, in, in mouse models, I suspect. But now she works in Drosophila. And when I asked her, I said, I asked her Brooke's question said, basically, are there other ways to get neuroscience experience without having to do mouse work? And Jada said, uh, yes, I work with flies now. But when I was in grad school, I specifically remember that I used to look down on lower model organisms and fly work. What can flies teach you about human biology and disease? And she said, boy, was I dumb and misinformed back then. So she acknowledges there's this sort of this mouse model elitism. A lot of universities will have it. A lot of labs will have it. But uh, people are doing important work in other systems. Uh, she does mention flies. She said, mice are definitely predominant in neuro research, but there have been amazing neuroscience labs out there in C. elegans, Drosophila, zebrafish, tissue culture, ex vivo preps, computation, etc. You just have to look for them. She points out that there are even specialized meetings for some of these non-mouse neuro folks. So there's like a fly neuro meeting, uh, and there are papers and organizations de dedicated to these non-mouse neuro pursuits. So I think my point is that Brooke can look for some of these other opportunities. Uh, you don't have to work with animals and work with mice if you don't want to, and you still want to study neuroscience. People are doing it. It may just be that you need to broaden your horizon a little bit and maybe use different keywords as you're searching these labs. I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad you reached out to, to Jada about that. I didn't actually realize that about her career path. You know, it's funny. I mentioned that in my postdoc that I ran far away from mouse work, uh, but I still had the same scientific interests. And actually the one paper I have from my, my postdoc was doing bacterial host pathogen interactions, looking at 
bacteria interaction with Drosophila with fruit flies. <laughs> and right? it was so fun. That was my whole that was my whole passion in my postdoc was to figure out other models that we could use to study some of these human uh, bacterial pathogens. And so uh, it's interesting to hear that, hear Jada's perspective. And that was so interesting. It was so intellectually interesting to do that um, at that time. So I'm glad Jada has actually done that <laughs> in her career. So Josh, give, give us the TLDR. We, we covered a lot of ground and I think we talked in generalities for anybody listening that is considering animal research. So we told our own stories we described a little bit about what animal research is like, but for Brooke's specific question, if she were in your office, you know, and you were advising advising her as a graduate student, what's the take home? Well, Brooke, you know, if you you were a student at my university and you came in asking for my advice on this very question, I would have a hard time recommending you join this lab with the animal work. You know, I think I really would lead with that giving it one shot to try to get in the other neuro lab that doesn't do animal work, but also you're in a general biomedical science program. You mentioned that this interest in neuro is still pretty new for you. You came into this program that sounds like it was multidisciplinary. You have some other background and interests, obviously, and you sort of settled on neuro as an interesting question. You know, by not choosing a neuro lab doesn't mean you don't find neuro interesting. You can still learn about it and discover it, but I just have, when you, in grad, grad school is really hard for a lot of reasons. And so my worry would be here at the very beginning, you've got a choice about what lab you join and you already recognize there's this aspect of this lab or labs that you've been rotating through that really wear on you enough to write into a podcast <laughs> and ask us about it. And so I really do, Brooke, have concerns that the realities of doing that animal work day in and day out over the next several years might just be too much and might actually lead to you not just disliking neuroscience and your lab, uh, but disliking research in general. So I guess if I had to, if I was forced to give a specific piece of advice, I would recommend you sort of look more broadly and see what else might be out there that's also interesting to you. Am I going to be mad at you if you decide like, no, this is I'm going to give this a try? Of course not. Uh, you know yourself and you know how you feel. But I would have some concerns. And right now, Brooke, you're at the point where you do have a choice, uh, an easy choice. You don't have to join. You haven't joined a lab yet. So um, I guess that's my that's my TLDR advice, Dan. Yeah, I love this opportunity, this this decision for Brooke when it's a postdoc and it's a two-year commitment and you don't lose anything if you decide after year one, I don't like it. Uh, with the graduate experience, it is a five or six-year commitment. And if you leave at year four and a half, you get nothing or maybe you get a master's degree, but it's, it's a really painful decision at that point. So... Um, you know, as Jada pointed out, there are going to be lots of opportunities for you to study different organisms. I, Jada did, Josh, you did, uh, I could have. And the reality is this graduate period, it really needs to be so supportive of how you want to learn and how you want to work because uh, there are so many other challenges that graduate school is going to throw at you. So if you can avoid feeling disgusted at work every day, that is going to be a major improvement to your quality of life. So I'd say, I'd say skip <laughs> this one. Um, figure out something else. You said that this piqued your interest. Find something else that piques your interest and 
try another opportunity, again, focusing on that mentorship, the lab environment. And once you get through graduate school, come back to it and say, do I still love, do I have these burning questions uh, that are just so powerful and so important that I need animals to answer that question? And then you can make the decision, but you're making the decision for a two-year stint, not for a five or six-year stint with something or nothing at the end. Well, Brooke, uh, I know we have <laughs> talked a lot about this, and I hope we've given you some things to think about. Uh, we certainly understand the conundrum you're going through. I hope some of this was helpful. We even phoned a friend to try to help you out. Um, but please keep us posted. Let us know what you ultimately do decide, and, and we'd love to, to follow along your path. Best of luck, Brooke. We'll be cheering for you. If you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear it. Email us podcast at hellophd.com or send us a tweet at hellophd. If you'd like to support the show, the best thing you can do is to share it with a friend, a lab mate, or your department listserv. We reach new listeners entirely by word of mouth, so we need your help. If you'd like, you can also become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the beer combined with soda money. <laughs> Thanks the ongoing support from our patrons. Dan, I want to do my own experiment where I'm going to purchase a wheat ale, and I'm going to purchase a cheer wine, and I'm going to mix them together, and I bet it tastes better than this beer. All right, let's do that on the next show, Josh. <laughs> we can make this happen. We, we totally should. All right, Dan, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.